John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, uh, the words of Jesus, the words are on the screen, I will uh, read them for you this morning. Jesus says, but very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Let's, uh, let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we're grateful for uh, the opportunity to uh, gather uh, freely this morning, openly this morning to worship you. Lord, help us to be reminded that there are many places around the globe where Christians are not free to meet. They cannot meet openly and worship you. We think of the believers that are part of the underground church in China. Millions of Chinese people that meet in secret to worship you. And so we give you praise and thanks for the opportunity to worship, to encourage one another, uh, and to hear your word. And so we pray that uh, you would open up your word uh, to our hearts this morning and speak to us through your spirit who lives within us. And we will thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We have been working our way through the Gospel of John, and uh, we are in John chapter 16 this morning, um, the first uh, few verses. And so uh, just let me remind you of where we're at context-wise. If you have a Bible like mine, John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 is all in, in red letters. These are the words of Jesus. It's it's the longest speech or discourse of Jesus in the whole New Testament. And so we're in John 16 this morning. Remind you that John 13 and 14 were spoken in the upper room in Jerusalem. It's it's Thursday night. It's Monday, Thursday. The very next day, Jesus is going to go to the cross. They gather together to observe the Jewish Passover, and Jesus infuses new meaning into that Passover, and He institutes the Lord's table, which we're going to observe in a little bit, this do in remembrance of me. It was a traumatic night for all the disciples. Jesus then announces that one of them is going to betray them, and of course we know that's Judas. Jesus announces that he's going to leave, and where he's going, the disciples can't follow him. Jesus also shares that Peter is going to deny him three times And so it was a traumatic night for the disciples and Jesus moves into John 14 and he begins to try to comfort them. He comforts them with four truths, a person. You believe in God, believe also in me because I am God. He comforts them with a place. I go to prepare a place for you. He talks to them about heaven. He comforts them with a promise. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'm coming back so that where I am, you might be also. And he comforts them with a person that's called the advocate or the the paraclete, the the Holy Spirit who's going to come. When Jesus finishes those words, and if you look in your text, in your your Bible, the last uh, verse, the last portion of uh, verse 31 of John chapter 14, Jesus says, come now, let us leave. 
So Jesus and his disciples leave the upper room, and where are they headed? They're headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're headed to that place where Jesus is going to pray and agonize over the cross and where he will be arrested. Some of the commentators think that as they walked to the Garden of Gethsemane, they, they passed by the temple, and on the temple walls were the carving of vines. And so as they're walking by, Jesus sees that, and he begins to t- tell the disciples, I'm, I'm the true vine, and you can't be fruitful apart from me. And so John chapter 15 and John chapter 16 are, are spoken to the disciples, the apostles, while they are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus shares with them four key truths that we want to look at this morning as they um, make their journey to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as we look at these truths, you'll, you'll discover that there's some recurring themes. There's some recurring themes that Jesus has already talked about. And he's emphasizing them to his disciples. And so let's look at uh, truth number one this morning that uh, Jesus shares with his disciples. And truth number one is a warning. It's, it's a warning. And um, here's the warning. Persecution is coming. Now, he's already talked about that in John 15. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we gave a message entitled, Why Does the World Hate Christians? And it's based on John 15. And Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And we unpacked that. Jesus again warns them about coming persecution. Verse 1, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. So Jesus is wanting to prepare his disciples for what's coming. And that's helpful in life, isn't it? If if we're facing um, maybe an unknown or we're facing something big in our lives, it's very helpful to know this is what's going to happen. If you're scheduled for some kind of surgery, you certainly want to sit down with your surgeon and you want to know, okay, what are you going to do and how long will this surgery be and uh, what is the recovery like and what is the rehabilitation like and that's going to help us face a difficulty. I remember years ago when our uh, youngest son uh, decided to join the Army National Guard and he had had uh, several of his buddies that had gone to boot camp ahead of him And he talked extensively with these buddies, like, tell me what boot camp is like and what should I expect? And and uh, they they filled him in on what their experience was with boot camp. And they told him uh, this helpful advice. About two weeks into boot camp, you're going to think that you made the worst decision in your life. You're going to want to quit and you're going to want to go home. And that's basically what happened. But he endured because he was expecting that to happen And he persevered through. Well, Jesus is preparing his disciples for some difficulty, for some persecution. He's forewarning them. Notice the warning. Here's the first one. They will put you out of the synagogue. Here's persecution number one. Christians, follower of Jesus, are going to be excommunicated from the Jewish synagogue. Now, that was already happening. And Jesus says it's going to continue to happen. If you remember in John chapter 9, when Jesus healed a a man born blind, and it created a great controversy because of uh, he he healed him on the Sabbath. And so the religious leaders are interrogating the parents of the man that was healed. 
And as they're interrogating him, verse uh, verse 22, um, they basically say, ask, ask our son because he can answer for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be what? Put out of the synagogue. So if you identify with Jesus, guess what? You can't, you can't worship in the synagogue anymore. And in fact, in the end of chapter 9, uh, this whole exchange, it, uh, it says in this interchange with a man born blind, they threw him out. They threw him out of the synagogue. And so, uh, this was, this was, uh, part of following Jesus. The, the persecution is that you will be kicked out of the synagogue. One more passage, John chapter 12. Uh, verses 42 and 43. This is, this is Palm Sunday. At the same time, many, even among the leaders, the Jewish leaders believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would what? Be put out of the synagogue. So there were some secret believers who believed in Jesus, but they would not openly identify with Jesus because that meant no more synagogue. And it's much more than what we think about. The Nelson Study Bible, um, as I looked at it, gave some insight here. It says the Jews had three types of excommunication or kicking people out of the synagogue. Here's the first one. One lasting 30 days during which the person could not come within, this will sound familiar, six feet of anybody else. I thought it was the CDC that came up with that. No, it's, 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 it's back here in the Jewish times. You can't come within six feet of anybody. Second, an indefinite period of time during which the person was excluded from all fellowship and worship. The third one was a permanent ban. It had economic impact as well. You could not conduct business with anybody who had banned from the synagogue. So getting kicked out of the synagogue is going to impact your whole life, your religious worship life, your social life, your economic life. And Jesus says, be prepared, because that that persecution is going to continue. There's a second warning about the persecution that is coming, and notice it in verse 2. They will put you out of the synagogue... In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. That's a rather shocking statement. There's a time coming when people that kill Christians will think that they're serving God by doing that. And that happened very, very shortly after Jesus made this statement. In just a few months, that's exactly what was happening. Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8, here's uh, Stephen uh, preaching a message before the, the Sanhedrin. The, it's the equivalent to our Supreme Court today. It was 70 Jewish religious leaders. And he preaches that message that Jesus is the Messiah. And what happens? They kill him. They stone him. And then in Acts chapter 8, we read, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. And so Jesus says, there's a time coming, and it happened 
in just a few months later where people were persecuting and killing Christians and they're like, I'm doing that in the name of God. And when the Apostle Paul writes his personal autobiography in, in, um, in the book of Philippians, he says, I was a, I was a keeper of the law. I was, a, I was a zealot. I thought I was doing the right thing. When he gives his testimony, he says, I, I'm the chief of sinners. He, God saved him and changed his life. And so here's the second part of the warning. A time is coming when anybody who kills you will think they're doing that in the name of God. That doesn't take a whole lot of thinking about what's happened in our world in the last 20 or 30 years to realize that this is happening today. That Christians are being killed and persecuted in the name of God. I certainly don't want to paint a broad with a broad stroke here. There are 1.5 billion Muslims in our world today that are mostly um, peace, peace-loving people. But there's a certain element of radical Islam who believes that their mission is what? To kill Christians. And they do it in the name of God. The phrase is Allah Akbar. Most Muslims use that phrase in a very um, non-threatening way. They'll say that a phrase which means God is great at a birthday celebration at a graduation, at some sort of great accomplishment, they're giving praise to their God. But is also used by radical jihadists before they kill Christians. Prior to the horrific terrorist attacks of 9-11-2001, the terrorists were instructed to yell, shout, Allah Akbar, God is great, because this strikes fear in the hearts of non-believers. The ringleader of the 9-11 attacks, Muhammad Atta, was overheard in a radio transmission just before Flight 93 went down. Quoting the Quran, Allah said, No prophet should have prisoners until he has soaked the land with blood. As the flight continued inside, as the fight continued inside the airliner, shouts of Allah Akbar are heard. Well, the first uh, warning, key truth that Jesus gives is a warning. And the warning is persecution is coming. And it certainly did for the first, uh, first century, century church. Here's the second key truth that Jesus gives in John chapter 16. And um, it's found in verse 7 where Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Now, this must have sounded strange to the disciples as well. I mean, they had been with Jesus for three years. He had been their um, their helper, their rock, their encourager, their provider. And now he says, it's for you, your good that I'm leaving. And he tells them why. And here's the explanation. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so Jesus explains that, um, this is an either-or proposition. Uh, I'm going to have to leave, and when I leave, then what? I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends up to heaven, and uh, he tells the disciples there to, to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And about six weeks later, on the day of Pentecost, what? The, the Spirit of God came in Acts 2, and the, the church was born. 
the helper, the advocate, the comforter had come. Well, we might ask the question, what benefit for Jesus' disciples and for us does the coming of the Holy Spirit have? What, what benefit is it that the Spirit of God now has come and Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father? Well, um, number one, Jesus says, when the Spirit of comes, it will be, He will be with you forever. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on believers for special times and special empowerment for special projects, but then He left. But Jesus says, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit will come And John chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, He will give you another advocate to help you, and He will be with you forever. He's not leaving. It it is a permanent indwelling. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Hey, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You don't belong to yourself, but you belong to God. And He lives within you. So the benefit is that we're going to have the, uh, the the Holy Spirit indwelling in our hearts. Jesus in his ministry could only be at one place at one time, or he chose to be at one place at one time. The Holy Spirit will be, I'll have to look up this word, it just came to me, ubiquitous. I think that means you can be everywhere at once. Maybe not, I'll look it up later, or somebody can tell me later. But he's going to be with every believer. What else does the benefit of the Holy Spirit coming? Why did Jesus say, it's to your benefit that I go away? Well, the Holy Spirit, we know, uh, is our teacher. He's called the Spirit of Truth. He testifies about Jesus. John 16, 13, He'll guide us into all truth. He convicts us of sin. He regenerates an unbeliever. He intercedes for us in Romans 8 when we don't know exactly how to pray or we're in so much pain we can't express ourselves and Paul says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And so Jesus says, it's, it's for your good that I go away. Why? Because the Spirit of truth, the, the Holy Spirit will then come. There's an interesting verse in John 14, verse 12, earlier in um, Jesus' discourse here. And let me read it. John 14, 12, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me, will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Jesus is telling His disciples that you will do greater things than what I do. Again, the Nelson Study Bible says Jesus had accomplished the greatest works possible, including raising the dead. How could He say that believers would do greater works The answer is seen in the extent of what the apostles did. Jesus' work on earth was confined to Palestine. The apostles would preach everywhere and see the conversion of thousands. Peter's message at Pentecost brought more followers to Jesus than Jesus' entire earthly ministry. The disciples were able to do this because Christ would go to the Father and send the Holy Spirit to empower them. And so the second key truth here that Jesus shares with his disciples is that it's good for me to go away because when I go, the spirit of truth is coming and he'll be with you forever and he will empower you and he will guide you in your life and in our lives as well.
All right, truth number three from John chapter 16 that Jesus shares with his disciples. And it's found in verse 16. Jesus went on to say, verse 16, John chapter 16, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Now we know what Jesus meant by that. In spite of the fact that Jesus, toward the the end of his ministry, told his disciples again and again of what was going to happen to Jesus, that he was going to be killed and that he would uh, raise again on the third day, they just didn't grasp it. And so to us, this makes sense. Jesus is talking about the resurrection. He's not saying, uh, he's talking about the fact he's going to die and come back. In a little while, you won't see me. I'm going to die. A little while longer, three days later, you're going to see me again. But the disciples didn't get it. Verse 17, at this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by this? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? And so Jesus explains it. Verse 20, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. That's the crucifixion. The world is going to rejoice that Jesus is dead and you will be weeping and mourning. But then there's going to be a reversal. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Your grief is going to be short-lived. Your pain is going to be short-lived. And what illustration does Jesus use for that? Of course, childbirth. It's just like, just like a mom. You know, goes through that, that pain and that agony and that grief, and then that baby's born, and all of a sudden grief turns to joy. This is the promise of the resurrection. In a little while, you won't see me. After a little while, you will see me. Have you ever thought, had this experience where Maybe you got some misinformation and you thought that somebody was dead, but they were really alive. Um, that happened to me a number of years ago, probably 15 years ago. And uh, the, the head of Maranatha Bible Missionary Conference, and he served very well for like 12 years, but his name was Ron Bush. And Ron was a wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, but Ron had uh, severe diabetes, and uh, Ron ended up uh, having some complications after diabetes surgery, and uh, Ron passed away at the age of 58. And so the dynamics of, of Maranatha are that people come from all over the Midwest and spend a week vacationing, vacationing their staff members. They, they might know the first name of the staff member, but not the last name. Perhaps some. And so when Ron passed away, news circulated that, that Ron from Maranatha had passed away. I remember coming the next summer and there were some people that came up to me and they're like shock on their face, like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I thought you had died. And like, no, no, that's the other Ron. I'm here. I'm alive. It happened several times throughout the summer. And they were like, oh, we're so glad we thought you were dead. Been praying for your wife, and well, thank you for the prayers. But I'm alive and well, alive and well. Think of the joy that the apostles had. You know, when they when they actually saw Jesus, John chapter 20. We read about it in verses 19 and 20. Here the um, 
Jesus appears. This is, this is Resurrection Sunday night. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders. The disciples are, they're probably back in that upper room. And the doors are locked and they're afraid and they're thinking, they've come after Jesus. They're coming after us next. And it says after they were there, it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. The disciples were what? Overjoyed when they saw the Lord. He's alive. He's risen. And Jesus says, in a little while, you won't see me. But in a little while, you will see me. And you will be overjoyed. And no one will be able to steal your joy. John chapter 16. Well, there's a fourth truth, and uh, this is where we want to want to close, and hopefully um, this truth is a great encouragement to all of our hearts, and the Lord knows we all need um, encouragement in the days in which we live. And so the last truth uh, is found in John chapter 16, uh, verse 33. Jesus closes this section I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Here's the good news. But take heart. Some of the other translations say, be of good cheer. Be encouraged. You are going to have trouble in this world. But take heart because I have overcome the world. A little bit later on, about 30 years later, the Apostle John writes in the book of 1 John another letter. And he writes this to the believers in 1 John 4, 2 through 4. Well, let me just read, let me just read verse 4. It says, You, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome the world. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So here's Jesus and he says, we're going to have trouble. But here's what I want you to focus on. Remember the truth. Guess what? I've overcome the world. We're on the victor side. And that word, uh, when Jesus says, I have overcome, is an interesting Greek word. It's the word Nike or Nike. Uh, you know, the, the corporate world has kind of captured that, that word with a whole line of, of, of clothing. And when we hear of Nike, we think of the, the shoes and the athletic clothing with a little check mark. But really, it's a biblical word. It means victory. It means overcoming. That Jesus has won a victory over the three enemies of the believer. I remember a few weeks ago, we talked about those three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus says, I've overcome the world. When you go to the end of the end of the book, the end of the Bible, in the, in the book of Revelation, you read in Revelation 17, 18, and 19 about a world system that is coming. And that world system could be summarized and represented in the, the city of Babylon and the word Babylon. It means a antichrist, an anti-God system. And as that system is in place, the Scriptures tell us that Jesus returns in Revelation chapter 19. 
It says that he, he comes and he returns on a white horse. His rider is called Faithful and True. His eyes are like a blazing fire and there are crowns on his head. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dripped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of the heavens were following him, riding on white horses. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God on his robe and on his thigh. His name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And John writes the fact that uh, in the end times, Jesus is going to return. He's going to be riding that, that white horse and he's going to conquer the world system that opposes him. Well, certainly Jesus has conquered the flesh. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Jesus, through his, his death and resurrection, has given us what, us hope. What? The, the grave is not the end. And someday Jesus is going to bring those bodies out of the grave and we're going to have a, a new body just like Jesus' body and the enemy of our flesh is defeated. And thirdly, our enemy of Satan will be defeated and doomed. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Just to be reminded of how, how the story ends, Revelation 20, verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so the scriptures tell us, and Jesus says, I want you to be encouraged. Because in this battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, God wins. And boy, how we need to be reminded of that today. Well, three or four quick application truths, uh, just as we journey through these four key truths from John chapter 16. And uh, then we'll take some time around the Lord's table here. But here's the first one. From John 16, as followers of Jesus, we must be prepared for increasing pressure and persecution. We, we, we mentioned that when we studied John 15, when Jesus says, because they hated me, they're going to hate you also. And certainly in the direction that our culture is moving, we have to prepare ourselves for what? Increasing pressure and persecution against Christians. And depending on what generation you're in, it will probably determine on how much this will impact you. Might not greatly impact the older generation here, but believe you me, our kids and our grandkids are going to face this. And they're going to face a choice. Either go with the flow of the world, or you stand up and choose truth and steal Jesus. And it will cost you something. Jesus is warning us. He warned his disciples. We must be prepared for those days are, are coming. Secondly, and this is from the promise of the Holy Spirit who's going to indwell us forever. Secondly, we are never alone. Isn't that great to know we're, we're, we're never alone because Jesus says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit and he will be with you forever. I shared the story of... Uh, our friend Ron Bush that went home to be with the Lord at 58 and uh, his his dear wife, uh, beautiful person, his name was was Fran. And in a, the previous years, um, before her husband died very suddenly, she had lost both parents. 
Um, she had one, one brother, um, and he died young, and then her husband died at 58. Now, I remember as we talked to her after those deaths happened in a very short period of time, and she had a very good sense of humor, and she was kind of half joking, but half not. She says, I'm little orphan Franny. And I don't have any family left. I know what she meant. But what we can tell Fran is, guess what? You're never alone. You're never alone. Because the Holy Spirit and God is with us forever. And he will send fellow believers into your life to help you and encourage you. Number three, because of the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus said, a little while you won't see me, but then you're going to see me. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have hope. Our grief when we stand by the casket of our loved one and we see that casket late lowered into the ground, that's not the end, is it? And so um, Paul writes about it in 1 Thessalonians 4 and he closes that section. He says, encourage one another with these words. What? Words of hope. We'll see them again someday. And that's the encouragement that we have in Christ. And then lastly, the fourth truth is this, that no matter what our circumstances are, no matter how difficult life is, we are victorious. The last chapter has already been written. Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has conquered our sinful flesh. Jesus has overcome the world. And we are overcomers if we have our faith in Jesus. And so this is how the Apostle Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8, which is probably the 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 peak, the pinnacle of, of truth in Scripture, the mountaintop section of Scripture. Here's what he writes. What shall we say in response to these things? These are rhetorical questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? The answer is no one. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. And then that familiar portion of Scripture, what shall separate us or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are what? More than conquerors. We're victorious. We're overcomers through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That, my friends, is victory. That, my friend, is being on the winning side. And that's the truth that is in your heart and life if you know Christ as your Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that while we all have trouble in this world, and we could take uh, we could take time this morning, and every one of us could have uh, a number of things, a number of challenges, a number of troubles that we're facing personally, and we could we could be here for hours talking about that. And Lord, help us to be sensitive to believers that are going through difficulty, but Lord, help us also to remember that it's temporary. 
that you allow troubles in our life to drive us to you and to refine our character. Lord, we thank you that ultimately we have hope and we have victory in you. And so may that truth encourage our hearts today, no matter what we're facing. And we'll give you the praise and the thanks in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.